I'm Jody Klugman Rab, a licensed marriage and family therapist in California. I took a DNA test for fun that led to the shocking discovery that the man who raised me was not my biological father, that I am an NPE or a non-paternal event. And I'm Christina Bryan Fitzgibbons. I've been a genetic and family investigator in Northern California since 2015. Most of my work focuses on interpreting DNA results and locating biological family. And that's how I met Jody. This is Sex, Lies, and the Truth, a collection of stories devoted to unexpected DNA discoveries, like donor conceptions, adoptions, or falsified and misled parentage discovered from at-home DNA tests, like non-paternal events. These are real people talking candidly about the rejection, shock, vulnerability, or fears that shape their stories. Some will make you laugh, cry, and cringe. You know, just like your family, only with a shrink and genealogist on call. Today, we're talking with Libby Copeland, an award-winning journalist who has written for the Washington Post, New York Magazine, and the New York Times, The Atlantic, as well as many other publications. She was a hoot to interview, fun and very personable and wicked smart. I thought I knew pretty much everything there was to know about DNA surprises, having experienced it myself, and having written the professional manual on how to actually work with it psychologically. But Libby brings a wealth of experience into the topic. Her new book was published this year, The Lost Family, How DNA Testing is Upending Who We Are, and It Was Impossible to Put Down. We think you'll like her as much as we did. Libby was not adopted. She is not an NPE. She does know who both of her biological parents are. So it's interesting that she would find such fascination in this topic. And that's where we began. What led her down this road? So I had written a piece for the Washington Post in 2017 about a woman named Alice Collins Playbuke and her experiences with genetic testing at the dawn of the consumer genomics era, which was 2012, when Ancestry first came out with its test. The test was in beta, so um, Alice's results weren't what she expected and she just figured they weren't ready for prime time, like Ancestry didn't know what it was doing yet. They're still testing it because she fully expected to be almost entirely Irish American in terms of her genetic ancestry and was half Ashkenazi Jewish and was sort of flummoxed by this because she knew her family history along both sides. She was a genealogist. You know, um, there wasn't anything she didn't know. So how could this be? (laughs) And it turned out that ancestry was not wrong. Ancestry was right. And it took her a really long time to figure out why. And um, I I sort of tell the story uh, in the article that I wrote in the post of how she sort of unraveled her genetic mystery. And when the piece ran, I put an email address at the bottom thinking I might get a few readers to write in and share their stories with me. And I got like hundreds within the first few days and weeks to the point where I was so overwhelmed with emails, I couldn't respond to all of them. I, I think there's some I still haven't read. It was, there were so many emotionally profound stories of how DNA testing was shaping the lives of Americans and people in Europe and elsewhere. So Libby quickly learned that this was not the story of just one woman, 
but what we've all now learned is an open secret for humanity since we began telling stories. The prevalence of misled or falsified paternity as a theme in stories goes back thousands of years, probably starting in classical mythology, Greek mythology in particular. Think about every demigod whose Olympic parent is hidden from them until it is necessary for them to fulfill some fate. Thematically, the concept of surprise paternal revelations has been included in some of the most beloved literature and film throughout history, including The Count of Monte Cristo, Wonder Woman, Superman, Creed, Indiana Jones, and Star Wars, to name a few. Even Jesus' story incorporates an NPE theme when he learns he is the son of God, not Joseph. Now that I know that NPE is a thing, I see it everywhere. And now Libby had begun to see it everywhere as the stories poured in and she realized there would be profound and seismic shifts in our culture, as she puts it. And then I also wanted to go back and tell Alice's story more fully because her story wasn't explained by any of the theories that would have been more common scenarios. It wasn't a non-paternity event or not parent expected. It was something else. And she, and she sort of had to go through all the theories and she had to, to do two and a half years of research and basically build a database of her DNA and all of her thousands of genetic relatives and the thousands of her siblings' genetic relatives to understand that her own mystery went back about a century. And so when I wanted to revisit her in the book, I wanted not only to know her better and to understand her process better and her brain better, because her, her an analytical mind is a large part of how she solved her, her mystery. But I also wanted to go back 100 years and do the historical research. And then I wanted to buttress her story, which is, I think, almost like an existential thriller, with the tales of all these other people who were reaching out, sort of early adopters of this technology, who could tell stories from the future for the rest of us, right? Because I think that in the future, more and more people will be in these databases, more and more people will have these experiences, and we all have to learn from the experiences of those who've gone before us. DNA discoveries like the NPE are not just more common because of scientific advances. It's not uncommon for me when I'm helping someone find a family member that I inadvertently bump into another NPE or another adoptee. I see it pretty frequently. Even while working on Jody's case, I bumped into an NPE scenario. The man that Jody initially believed was her biological father is deceased, but he had two sisters who both happened to have done DNA, which was great for me so I could rule him in or out as her father. Neither of those sisters matched Jody, so that confirmed to me he was not her father, but I also happened to notice that those sisters were not full sisters, they were only half. There was a woman that I was interviewing who discovered that she was the product of an NPE, and she was trying to figure out her own, you know, identity of her genetic father, which was very complicated and muddied by this community of people who are with lots of cousin marriage, which, as you know, can make it very complicated to trace ancestry and family trees. And anyway, so she's you know reaching out to distant cousins here and there, getting them to test, and um, in the process, a cousin offers to test for her in hopes of helping. And it turns out that that cousin through that test discovers that she herself is the product of an NPE. So it's like, you know, sometimes many times in a family. And I think obviously any one of us, if we go far enough back, is going to have multiple experiences like this because that's just the nature of human life. Everyone has an amateur genealogist in their family. The person who seems to hold the most archives of the family information, 
has the best stories and probably the most complete family tree. In my family, that was me. No one on either side seemed especially interested, and certainly not as much as me. Libby refers to these people as the seekers. And in her book, we meet Alice, who had the best set of skills to help her on this quest. She had just retired, and she also had the experience of having done genealogy for many years, so she had that piece of it. Then she also had this um, incredible experience working with technology going back to the 60s to like early mainframe computers. And then her specialty in her career had been um, like data management, information processing. So the flow of information. So taking huge amounts of information and making sense of it in both a detailed and a big picture way. That was what she did for decades. So she was like uniquely positioned. If you were writing a fiction book and you were looking for a character who would be just perfectly positioned to solve this particular kind of mystery, it would have been Alice. And then she did get help. She got help from her cousins. Some of her her genetic cousins would turn out to be um, genealogists in their own right. She got help from Cece Moore, who's a genetic genealogist. So she was sort of like far and wide reaching out to whoever could help her and just taking in and processing all this information and and then using it. I think Carl Jung would describe that as synchronicity. (laughs) All all of those unique positions uh, put her in exactly the right place at the right time to be able to figure this all out. Yeah. I had a similar awakening when I realized all of this. I was well into my private practice but I had been specializing in trauma and anger management. And I had been the quasi family historian. I realized I had all of the training I needed in order to deal with this, both on a personal level and to be able to bring it to life on a professional scale. So we're back to the theme of synchronicity again. We see anecdotal evidence that NPEs were often the family genealogists and the record keepers. They always were. And Perhaps it's intuition or an intuitive biological curiosity, likely from the inalienable bond of biology that could explain why the seekers have that drive. Yeah, I think that there are people who sense things and they might not even articulate them to them those questions to themselves. I think that it may be that people who are drawn to DNA testing, you know, do so because they're they're looking to find out more. I think there are probably people who test and we don't hear their stories who see something unexpected and they just step away. And so we don't hear from them because what they discover is not in line with what they're assuming. You know, Alice made this discovery in 2012 and it was a big deal. Her brother had actually tested shortly before and either hadn't looked at his results or had looked at them and dismissed them because he considered them junk science. You know, there are cases where Um, simply because you choose not to look, you don't make the discovery. And that may be in line with the fact that you're not particularly interested in finding out. And that's fine. Not everyone needs to know. There's a self-selection process here, I think, at work. What I found is that agency is incredibly important for people. That when the news is thrust upon you by someone else, people often don't respond as well as when they are the makers of their own meaning. They are um, key, you know, journeymen or journeywomen in their own process of discovery. That seems to be incredibly important. And so I think sometimes the people who are testing are the ones who are looking are the ones who are willing to consider uh, news that's not maybe in line with what their experience is. And then they're, and then they're the ones most invested in understanding the context for those results. 
The agency Libby speaks about is at play in almost any trauma or crisis we go through. There's a different quality to the traumas we can prepare for versus the ones that happen without our permission, even if it's the death of a loved one. It plays into our need for control, to feel safe. And this may have been in play when I met my biological father, who was not ready to confront this change I had thrust into his life and pretended not to be himself. Libby calls them the secret keepers. I've been curious about the experiences of the secret keepers because I don't know what their stories are like. Um, I've talked to a few of them for my book, but I have many more experiences of people who are the seekers of the of the, of the secrets rather than seekies. And, um, you know, there were people who I contacted for the book who didn't want to talk about it or they would talk about it, but it took a great deal of convincing because they didn't want to tell their stories. There's a reason those secrets were secrets for them, right? There's a reason they were keeping them. I am very curious what their experiences are like, you know, therapeutically and otherwise. I can tell you from my mom's perspective, she definitely feels like her life has been splayed open mm-hmm. for everyone to judge and uh, make comment over, in part because mm-hmm. I've decided to go public. But I think um, a lot of people miss is that the secrets needed to be kept for a variety of reasons, most of which were very valid, particularly for women who you know, were acting on their own sexual congress and who's to say that that's right or wrong except for culture and society dictated that it was for them in that right in that context that it was wrong so my mom coming from a very conservative roman catholic family on the east coast now married to a man that she didn't like and it was her second marriage so that was already a strike against her very roman catholic upbringing and she had decided she would make the most out of the life that she was living with a military man out in San Francisco, away from her family and away from him, from her husband for a time, because he was gone three weeks out of each month with his superior doing whatever his assignment was. And so she started a series of affairs. In the 70s, in, you know, right after the summer of love in the Bay Area, I don't fault her for any of that. It makes perfect sense that she would make those choices. But when the consequences came, and that was a surprise pregnancy, she was left with the shame of now knowing that she was pregnant with somebody else's child while she was married to somebody else she was miserable with in her second marriage that was a problem for her family to begin with. So lots of shame. And even though it was 40 years later, she was still very much living within that shame when I found out. So the secret keepers, I think, create these narratives for themselves to be able to live with their choices and the consequences of those choices. And then us seekers come along and barrel through all of this saying, it is our right to know what our origin story is and why this was all kept from us and who we're actually related to, but it comes at a cost for the secret keepers, and I I get why. It's almost like we're frozen in amber, you know? (laughs) I mean, we make a decision 40, 50 years ago, the culture is drastically different, and then the culture changes, but the secret is like still from the 1960s or the 1970s, it's like completely frozen. I I just think that secrets have an internal logic. They tend to um, have a kind of inertia where once they're started, you don't 
you, you know, they're difficult to stop. You may not want to stop them. And so the logic for that then also remains in the past, even as it's carried forward into a completely different cultural context. Another common theme in the DNA surprise world is that secret keepers are narcissists. And we've heard lots of that from our guests. It's an interesting question. Were they narcissistic to begin with as a personality style? Or did the nature of keeping this type of secret make them that way? Taking into account that some women were coerced and were victims themselves, for any other category of NPE, is it a natural byproduct to become frozen in that secret, as if in amber, as Libby says, so that you protect it at all costs, as if your life depended on it? And then who's right? Does the secret keeper or the seeker have the right to own the story? I wonder if some of it may have to do with different ways of conceiving the importance of biology in one's identity. And again, I wonder if this is a cultural change. Um, I, I feel like we live in this, this era of transparency and authenticity. Even the seeking of DNA to understand your genetic origins is a very of-the-moment thing. We've made it important to tell your own story. We've made it important to understand your origins you know, I'm thinking of that school of parenting that was like, your child is a blank slate and you can form them and it doesn't matter. It's all nurture. And I wonder if, you know, what part of what may be happening in some cases is a kind of a butting up of of parenting philosophies. The idea that, no, you are who your parents made you into. It was all just a question of nurture. And why does it matter when your truth impinges on my privacy? My privacy should trump your truth. And I'm not saying that one is more important than the other. I, I find these conflicts so moving because they're understandable from each side. While it's very modern to be defining ourselves through our genetic identities, it's been a human endeavor to define our biological connections well before DNA was understood. Royalty and the nobility went to great lengths to determine proper bloodlines because succession to the throne and inheritance was linked to it. With so much history in this book, pertaining to the literal history of the commercial DNA test, as well as the impact on Seeker's identity, we asked Libby what stood out the most for her while researching DNA surprises. You know, one of the things that stands out is um, just how unpredictable the outcomes are. You take two people and they're both discovering that they're the product of an NPE and they don't know what they're going to find. They're remarkably vulnerable a lot of the time because you're reaching out to a stranger who seems to hold the fate of your heart in their hands a lot of the time. And you literally don't know what you're going to get. So, you know, I I write about a man named Jason. (laughs) He forges a relationship with a man who thinks is his genetic father for quite a long time as an adult. Finally does DNA, finds out after 12 years of making this relationship with this man, the man is not in fact his genetic father, and discovers that the man who is his genetic father welcomes him with open arms, unlike the man he had spent so much time trying to connect with. And it's just an absolutely beautiful story. The man welcomes him in, the family is blended, there's no distinction between the the half and the full and the step-siblings. He's just another member of the family. They very quickly start inviting him to kids' plays and, you know, Christmas. And he told me, you know, there had been a hole in his heart. And then I tell another story in my book about um, a, a number of stories where, you know, there is like no happy ending. There's a woman named Jackie who, um, you know, finally manages to figure out the identity of both of her birth parents, and um, neither one of them is alive. 
when she reaches out to her siblings on her father's side, their response is, you know, this is really painful for us. You are reminding us of a man that we don't have completely good memories of for a lot of complicated reasons, so give us some space here. And when she reaches out to her half-siblings through her mother, her mother's children, their response is basically, you mean to tell us that our mother did this? She gave up a baby and, and left this baby at four days old on a pastor's doorstep? We don't believe you. That for her was so incredibly painful, right? That, that she was being denied her existence, that she had been made the messenger of her own existence. She had been put in this position of coming to them and saying, here I am, and this is my name, and I exist. And they had said, no, your narrative clashes with our narrative, so therefore we're just going to ignore yours. And yet, at the same time, from their perspective, how incredibly painful to find out this thing about their mother, and their mother's not even alive for them to ask questions. These stories often are not finished when the family shuts the door the first time. Sometimes they will reopen the door, or do so with conditions. Sometimes a half-sibling will secretly form alliances without the biological parent knowing. Each case is very individual, and no one really has control over any of it. It's just an illusion to think you do. Everyone in your universe can proofread your letter to make sure it has the right tone, but ultimately, the people on the receiving end will do what they need to for themselves. So even if they do shut the door, without ever meeting them, you can find out the family religion, schools, real estate investments, immigration, and cherished vacations through social media, newspaper entries, and various databases. And you mentioned family dynamics. You're stepping into a situation, you don't know the backstory. You don't know where the landmines are. You don't know what the story is of the mother's relationship with her other children and who's the favorite and who resents. You know, sometimes different siblings in a family will have different reactions. Um, you know, some of them feeling more secure in their relationship with their parents and some of them feeling more insecure in their relationship with their parents and more threatened by your new, all that stuff. So yeah, there's a fair amount of sleuthing you can do, I think, in just in terms of maybe getting a sense of the person. Um, and, and sometimes people, you know, in their efforts to even understand their relationship to someone can wind up getting themselves into a less than ideal situation. So for instance, you are looking for a genetic parent and you test, and I'm sure you've, you've seen this, you test and you match up with a second cousin and then you message them saying, I'm trying to figure out how we're related. And then the second cousin goes and tells, and you've lost your ability to have that sensitive, nice overture because the second cousins figured it out or the second cousin started asking um, around and then all of a sudden it, the story is out of your control. So my work is divided into two pieces, the DNA, finding out who the biological family is, and quite frankly, that's the easiest part. The other part is the outreach. What do you do? How do you do it? What are the pitfalls? What's the protocol? Well, there really isn't any protocol. It's incredibly important to get this part right. For example, I would really strongly caution against anyone becoming Facebook friends with a second cousin before they've even reached out to the birth parents. I asked Libby what she's gotten personally out of writing her book. I found the experience of reporting this to be unlike anything else. Um, I think because the stories are so intimate and I spent so much time with people, sometimes over the course of a year, I would keep talking to someone that is a level of reporting and understanding um, that, you know, isn't just isn't like what I've done before. So I found that to be, I felt incredibly privileged and honored that people were sharing these stories because 
you know, and it's tough to be that vulnerable. It's tough to be that vulnerable all of a sudden at the age of 55, say, to rock it back to your six-year-old self, to suddenly feel like a child who's craving love and acceptance from a parent or um, a sibling or to, who's craving to be accepted into a circle. Libby doesn't have a personal DNA discovery yet, anyway. She's still contemplating taking a test, so who knows what she will discover, if anything. One of the elements of the book I really enjoyed was the thoughtful research she put into identity and how it changes with these discoveries. There's no ending to these. I think that these are experiences that people may process for the rest of their lives. We don't know yet because the earliest people to have made these kind of discoveries, you know, DNA testing's only been around for 20 years and, and these kind of discoveries for the most part have been limited to the last 10 years. But I suspect from talking to people who were testing in 2010 and 2012 and making these discoveries based on the fact that they're still evolving, I, I suspect that this is an experience that you carry with you for the rest of your life and that you continue to process for the rest of your life. It's caused me to think more deeply about how selective we are. I think DNA testing introduces all these questions that we've already in some cases been thinking about but maybe didn't realize. For instance, your ethnic identity is not binary. It's not a either or thing. It's not biology or experience. It's both. I know that from having interviewed a lot of people, it caused me to think more deeply about how I identify. So why do I identify more strongly with one half of my genetic ancestry than the other, even though you know, I'm close to both my parents. Well, it has to do with things having to do with the history of the particular genetic ancestry that I identify with, the history of how important it was to that parent, the way that religion ties in with being Ashkenazi Jewish. So in my case, you know, I'm half Ashkenazi Jewish, but I identify very strongly with that, even though plenty close to my dad, who's not Ashkenazi Jewish, but he never had that uh, strong cultural sense. A lot of the things that DNA testing forces us to think about that have to do with how do you make a family? Um, you know, who do you consider a family? How do you define yourself in terms of your ethnic heritage? These are things we've already been thinking about, but DNA testing makes them more dramatic. And if you look back at the history of genealogy and people doing their family trees, you see that people were always interested in certain lines more than others. They would highlight certain branches of their tree and other ones they would say, oh, I don't, I don't know, I'm not gonna focus on those people, I don't relate to them, or they were scoundrels. <laughs> or what have you. Who doesn't like a few scoundrels in their family? Thanks again to Libby Copeland for chatting with us on the podcast. She was a reporter and editor for The Post for 11 years, has been a media fellow and guest lecturer, and has made numerous appearances on television and radio. She specializes in the intersection of science and culture, and you can find her book, The Lost Family, How DNA Testing is Upending Who We Are at Your Favorite Book Venue. Sex, Lies, and the Truth is written and produced by Christina Fitzgibbons and Jody Klugman-Rab, two moms and professional women living the dream. We crack each other up, we can sniff out the truth, and we help people tell their stories. If you or someone you know would like to tell their story, you can reach us at sexliesandthetruth.com. If you are a fan of Sex, Lies, and the Truth and want to support us, you can do that through Patreon. Patreon is a really cool platform where fans of shows like ours can pledge a small amount each month, even just a few dollars, to support the show. 
You can find us there at www.patreon.com forward slash sex lies and the truth.